0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am so glad to be done with grading this year.
1: And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am apprehensive of my coming summer projects. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking tequila barrel-aged chocolate cinnamon stout from the Empyrean Brewing Company.
1: I feel like you're ending your cinnamon-themed year strongly with a literal picture of cinnamon sticks on the label. Oh, we got one more, buddy. Oh my gosh, one more.
0: <laughs> May, June, yeah, June June is a standard month. July is the freebie, but... We got one more. We got a June one to do. Yeah,
1: that's all right. I like chocolate. Yeah. It smell, I'm smelling the chocolate pretty strongly. Yeah. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? Many schools have adopted new instructional standards in recent years, but some schools have struggled in helping teachers align their instruction. We talk with author Morgan Polikoff about his team's work studying why flexible specificity is so important for success. Later, we look at a very large study of a belonging intervention that helps students persist in their first year of college. We consider what that could mean for teachers in both K-12 and higher education settings. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, The Good Struggle of Flexible Specificity, Districts Balancing Specific Guidance with Autonomy to Support Standards-Based Instruction. This was written by Amy Neolo, Laura Desimone, and Morgan Polikoff. This was published in American Educational Research Journal in 2023, and we are grateful to welcome one of the authors from this paper to join us for this segment. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Polikoff.
2: My pleasure. Glad to be here.
1: Dr. Morgan Polikov is an associate professor of education policy at the USC Rossier School of Education. In 2021, he published Beyond Standards, which critiques standards-based reform policy in the U.S. and advocated for the role of high-quality instructional materials. He is also a 2011 Jeopardy! champion. So Morgan, you're really active on social media, and I've been I've enjoyed following you and watching some of your education threads and even engaging sometimes for the thoughtful way that you navigate nuance in some of these policy conversations. And I think when you and your co-authors were talking about this new publication that you've got out, what really caught my attention was sort of the what I think of as the core of the paper being this um, specific flexibility, flexible specificity. Uh, and that dovetails really well. That aligns with some work that actually Lawrence and I have done together on, on a past paper. And so that got my attention immediately of, I want to read this paper and it's a really robust qualitative study that looked at a lot of the experiences of different people across a lot of different school districts. What What was it like putting together or working on this pretty large project?
2: Well, this Paper was part of a, a five-year federally funded uh, center focused on college and career-ready standards implementation. So this project, which was you know case studies of five school districts, was actually part of a much larger project that included um, a, you know s- uh, state representative surveys. It included work that I led, which was about instrument development and content analyzing uh, standards and curriculum materials. And then we had the, these deep dive case studies where we chose districts and uh, really spent a lot of time in those districts, understanding what was going on in terms of standards implementation. Um, so it, it was, uh, you know, it, it was one piece of many for us to try and sort of, um, you know, together looking across the studies, make sense of, okay, what's happening with college and career ready standards? Are they being implemented? Um, you know. Uh, well, and uh, where, and why, and
1: why not. If papers include a theoretical framework at all, I'm going to say it's, there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, and that's the framework and they move on. But to be able to just very clearly lay out some of the components, like some of the Um, pieces that make up the lens for your analysis. I think this might be the first paper I've ever read where it actually helped me understand what you were analyzing as opposed to like, oh, it's over there, whatever. I could have skipped that section and it wouldn't have mattered. It actually was useful to think of what were the five components. They were, um, power is is one of them that stands out in my mind because it really seemed like it was important.
2: Yeah, so the, and those five components, this so-called policy attributes theory, which isn't really a theory, but it's just sort of like a, a way of thinking about how to make policies more effective. that actually guided the whole larger center. Um, so when we submitted our proposal to the Institute for Education Sciences, we wrote about the policy attributes theory, and we carried that through the qualitative work, but also through the surveys. We asked questions about each of those components. And we you know there's a number of published papers that that relate policy attributes to standards implementation. And I've written about that. I've used that policy attributes um, framework. I even going back to my own dissertation. That was uh, my conceptual framework as well. So, it and, and it comes from Andy Porter, uh, who is uh, was the PI, the principal investigator of the Whole Center. Um, He's a uh, retired dean of the Penn grad School of Education. Also happened to be my PhD advisor. And so, you know, it, I think it's. Um, I think it really is, I mean, it's almost like a heuristic for, for thinking about like, okay, well, what are the components of policies that seem to matter in terms of their implementation and education? And and I agree with you that, you know, we really um, worked hard to follow it through the whole paper. Um, and and you can see, we and that's how we ended up with the term flexible specificity. You know, uh, we we get that really from the policy
0: attributes framework. So before we get into the weeds of this, can I take a shot at trying to like uh, reframe it and summarize it for um, for audience members that haven't read it? Is that, yeah. can, can I give that a shot? So uh, uh, there are five districts that, that were explored and all of them had new standards that were being um, uh, adopted by the, the districts and The um, districts had different approaches for um, supporting or not, in some cases, not supporting the teacher's relationship with those new standards. And you uh, did extensive interviews to develop an understanding of how teachers felt uh, and their perceptions of their ability and their support and engagement in um implementing those new standards based on different district approaches.
2: Yeah, I think I think by and large that's right. I mean, I think to you know, we were especially focused, you know, there are kind of like two big policy levers that school districts have at their disposal for standards implementation, and those are curriculum materials and professional learning. And so really what when it comes down to it, what we did was we investigated these five districts and we looked at How were they um, structuring their curriculum materials in terms of their choices and their expectations for teacher implementation? And how were they structuring their professional learning as well? And we analyzed them according to this policy attributes framework to try and understand, okay, well, which place were being more successful in terms of actually getting the standards implemented as intended in the classroom and which places weren't and why. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely, and it it involved not just talking to teachers, but also um, talking with school district leaders and curriculum leaders. We talked with, um, uh, uh, you know, school principals. We we even observed some lessons, although I don't think the observation data made it into this paper. Um, So, uh, um, yeah, it was it was a huge undertaking, but really fundamentally just to understand what were districts doing with curriculum materials and professional development to support standards implementation and and why was it working or not?
1: What struck me, I was really trying to understand Texas. both because I have existing relationships in Texas, but also because they seem to have a fair amount in common with the two districts that you talked about that were generally successful in supporting the sort of standards-based reform efforts. And then these three districts that were largely unsuccessful, Texas was unsuccessful, but had more stuff in common with the two successful districts. And so that was, I was kind of watching, like how, is, how, is, how are the differences manifesting in what you saw in the first part of that table? And it looked like differences in consistency and stability were really important, which I understood was like a lot of what you analyzed coming out of that was, uh, can you just, can you tell us a little bit about what consistency and stability mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, you know, consistency, I think is, you know, you might just think, you know, it it has a lot of sort of synonymous terms that we're all familiar with. So consistency is kind of like alignment or it's kind of like coherence, right? These, it's basically... To what extent are all of the policy things happening in the district pushing in the same direction? Are they sending the same message to teachers about what it is that they're supposed to be doing? Um, And, you know, and, and anytime you talk to teachers, of course, about like their professional learning or standards implementation, they'll readily tell you right like oh you know we got this pd it was a one off it was totally unrelated to what we were you know what we're told we're supposed to be doing right so so that's what consistency means everyone has sort of a a clear understanding of that and stability is really just this idea that you know you need time to uh to implement really any reform and and i think one of the things that we all again if you talk to teachers or if you study education for a while you know that there's kind of this like churn of reform right because the policies aren't very stable it's like you put in something you try it for a couple of years you see it isn't working you have some new district person you know some new superintendent comes in they have a different priority or there's some new fad of the day right and that also i think undermines you know a sort of consistent implementation and long-term vision when you've got this constant churn so so those are two of the of the main attributes um, and um, yeah and and were a, a focus of our analysis um, and I think in the case of the Texas district I would say actually that it uh, to some extent I mean it, it was about um, differences in you know consistency and stability but I think it was um, uh, you know there, I think, in the right in the Texas district, there was this sense, there wasn't as clear uh, uh, a sense when we talked to teachers about the coherence of the vision and the coherence of this, um, the district's uh, uh, different approaches to supporting standards implementation. Where in California, in particular, because that's the place where I spent the most time. I've actually never been in a place where there was as unified a voice about what the goal was and what the expectations were for teachers about what they should be doing, and that was just because of that consistency. Right, you're hearing the same message over and over again. You really start to believe it and buy into it.
1: And Lawrence, I I couldn't help but think of the paper just from last month that we read, looking at uh, nationwide. Uh, about teacher evaluation reforms. And like that being one of the primary critiques was we changed things last year. Why aren't things different now? And like, well, it takes a while to show you've got the commitment to the changes and to help understanding like be cultivated and disseminated across the the organizations. And so uh, I appreciated seeing in this, in your paper, that you were attending to the importance and the role of that consistency over time, the stability over time, because that has been a major flaw in teacher evaluation reforms, which we just happened to like just sheer coincidence. We were talking about it last month.
2: Yeah, I mean, pick a reform, right? And that's the kind of the story. Um, and so even, and I think even, within form, within reforms that have been quite stable like i would say standards-based reform actually has remarkable stability as kind of a a high-level policy instrument we've been doing standards-based reform for like 30 years but at a sort of micro level we get you know waves of standards where now all of a sudden it's you know it's oh the the standards say that it should be more student directed and before it said something different or now we're supposed to do more procedures and before we were supposed to do more conceptual understanding or you know we're doing standards now you know we're doing standards but we don't actually have we don't get aligned curriculum materials until 5 years into to the effort right and so um, absolutely i think that's a trend and, and teacher evaluation i think is is another prime example
0: so when i'm thinking about this paper uh your school districts you divided them into into um three different kind of categories the rural districts the urban districts and the suburban districts and uh just to simplify things the suburban districts had teachers who had positive um uh perspectives of that their relationship to implementing the standards and the rural and urban districts did not communicate that same uh, optimism or positivity. And so for like maybe framework of this discussion, since we we kind of like to talk about this uh, podcast as uh, getting to the shoulds of the paper. So maybe uh, let's discuss what went wrong. Uh, let's talk about maybe some of the perceptions and the, the approaches of the districts that did not seem to work. And then we can like discuss, okay, now that we've got that because I think a lot of I think a lot of teachers will be able to identify with some of those frustrations. I mean, teaching is a high turnover profession because there's a lot of dissatisfaction in it. And so if we can acknowledge the states that are dissatisfying, we can then say, okay, now let's discuss the good stuff. So um, let's talk let's let's talk about one of those districts. I you can choose, or, or or we can start where or we can make a proposal. But let's talk about one of those districts where things weren't working out, and let's talk about why they weren't working out.
2: I think this paper ultimately like a frankly a lot of education research is a little bit of like sort of common sense is like I could have written the paper with common sense before I actually analyzed all these heaps of data, so I think that you know if you were to start with the the rural district, which is located in Massachusetts um you know this is a district that at its core you know is fully bought into the idea of like Local control is everything, right? And so, you, so you you could talk. You would talk to district leaders, and the, it was almost like the district leaders didn't believe that there was any role for the district to play in shaping teaching and learning in the district. Which I think, you know, sounds like a, a bit of a wacky idea. But actually, I think there are lots of places all around the country where both states and uh, districts. Uh, leaders really believe that right that like the district's job is not to tell teachers what to do or not to you know have you know have expectations for them and so uh that you know and and that was how it was experienced right so so curriculum materials it was like a local it was like do whatever you want it was like totally laissez-faire which you know i think on the one you know people say oh well we don't want to be telling teachers what to do, or, you know, we don't want to, you know, we want to empower teachers, but not giving anyone any support is not empowering, right? And so what we see in, you know, what we saw in that district was, well, of course, you wouldn't get coherent standards implementation when you're not giving anyone, you know, clear materials or expectations for how to use them or support that's aligned with the standards, right? So that was kind of the one extreme, which I think is, you know, you might think of these districts as emblematic of various kinds of districts around the country, right? And then the Pennsylvania district, which was an urban district, was kind of, uh, I think, had actually vacillated between different reforms as a, as a lot of um, I think large urban districts in particular are are seen as doing that, right? So it it had been a place that was like. The other extreme for Massachusetts, so really tightly scripted. We expect you to be on this day, saying this thing at this time, and then there was a backlash to that because, of course, there would be. And then they went to the opposite extreme, which was you know really to- again totally unstructured. And in that case, it was experienced because it's a it's a you know a large urban district. In some in some schools, the principal was still all about scripted, and you've got to be on this thing, and then in other schools there was again no guidance at all so it was very disorienting and teachers would you know were, were almost like living in like a culture of fear around what is it that i'm supposed to be doing um so that might be emblematic of a different kind of uh district right one that um I mean, you know, I'm it started with real strong scripting, which is which is one way of approaching curriculum. If, you know, if, you, if of course if you want curriculum to be implemented, you could just literally force people to do it, which is what that district had been doing. And then, as a reaction to that, moved uh, again to a sort of local control, let every school do what it wants, which was experienced as this wide degree of variation.
1: Lawrence and I with a couple of other co-authors, that's one of the papers that we wrote that like, I think you could cite it. Like, I think it is highly relevant to to this, to this kind of work uh, where we were talking about collaborative autonomy, which is specifically about navigating that tension of empowering professionals to be professionals while also pursuing a shared vision for what you're doing in the building and in the district. And that those things are not necessarily at odds with one another, but I don't see very many places that are holding two truths in their hands simultaneously. And I think that that's a big piece of what's coming out of the narrative of these districts that we're struggling is they see it as either 100% scripted curriculum, which we, we've got the, the democratic critique of scripted curriculum. That's another past episode. Like we know that that's, that's something that we are like philosophically opposed to, but then also you have, you have to support teachers, like do whatever you want. Isn't remarkably disempowering.
0: And, um, the paper that we published, one of the sort of the questions from leadership that that was we kind of propose is what the question that leadership should be asking is, uh, how would you like to improve and how can I help? And when we start looking at these districts and we start looking at the approaches of these different districts, the rural district was granted freedom. We respect your professionality, do whatever you want to do this, but they didn't ask, how can I help? they didn't ask that how can i support you in in exercising your professional uh, uh, autonomy they didn't offer any and so there wasn't perceived to be any support and so there was that frustration whereas when we come back and have some of the discussions about some of the districts that had more positive perspectives from their teachers you we will we we'll, we saw that there was response there was that question was asked questions were asked and then they were responded to in a in a manner that respected the professionality of the teachers so you if you give freedom with no support you're still just encouraging frustration in your teachers
2: what i would say is that the the clearest difference for me um in you know, across, across these districts. But I think that the Texas example is is one in particular, is the consistency of the messaging about what good teaching and learning look like, and the organization of absolutely everything in the school day around that. And, you know, as I said, I spent the vast majority of, uh, I, I led the vast majority of the California data collection. And this was a district where Everyone was singing the same tune from the superintendent all the way down to individual classroom teachers. I mean, there was there was literally I and I and I remember him because he was so notable. There was one teacher who wasn't buying it. And this was like one of these guys he was in his last year or his next to last year, and he was like, I'm not doing this, I'm just closing the door and doing what I want. But everyone else was really bought into, they just believed in the curriculum materials. Uh, They they understood that they that there were clear expectations for implementation, but that they were also allowed to supplement and encouraged to supplement as needed to do it collaboratively with other teachers in their school so that kids would be getting the same experience, you know, no matter who they were, who they were in a class with. And so that, you know, frankly, that the teacher wasn't having to, you know, go on Pinterest the night before and find some, you know. Activity of of you know dubious quality. There, the whole school week was structured around supporting data analysis and uh, curriculum implementation. Right with PLC time on Fridays, and with um, you know this district had a, a, a decent number of English learners, so uh, they. Uh, uh, you know weren't getting the outcomes that they wanted for their ELs and so they added an EL block at the start of the day for everyone across the whole district. And actually one thing one you know sometimes you could hear teachers grousing about well I only have 2 ELs and I don't really feel like this is a great use of my you know precious instructional time but this was the vision right because the whole district really believed in that um that this all should be you know uh, one machine operating um together. So it's about yeah it's about building these structures that are aligned with the vision it's about um you know uh you know i mean all the same things we've already said right it's about um having clear expectations and high quality tools like curriculum materials but also high quality assessments that are common across classrooms but also um you know empowering people to make decisions Um, and, uh, and it, and it really is, you know, one of the other things we talk about, um, in the paper, one of the other sort of leverage points is around authority, which is basically just buy-in. It really is about, um, all of these things together are, are, you know, they're working together to cultivate buy-in, right? And teachers are bought in because they're seeing success. They're feeling like they're, you know, they have good relationships with their peers and they're, and they're implementing, um, together successfully. So, you know this wasn't a study focused on primarily like data analysis so i didn't spend time observing data meetings so i can't say what it is about their use of data that was different from some other place i mean i do know that data you know um like data driven decision making can also be a kind of you know quasi scripted performative activity right that isn't really about you know fundamentally Understanding what students need and and what you need to do different um, and i and I think that's often how it's implemented in places that are sort of dysfunctional or not particularly coherent right It's just another thing to do, and it's not part of some some vision for how do you actually move instruction forward
0: so one of the things that separated the suburban schools from the urban schools and we kind of touched on this earlier was the willingness to gather feedback and then respond and make changes to the communication of the, of the teachers involved. And I think, I I think it was Ohio, uh, the Hawaii Ohio suburban school. They're the one where they said, okay, for the first year, we really are mandating that you do everything by the book, very scripted. Am I, am I right about that? Or was that Ohio? Yeah, I mean,
2: both, both. I mean, Ohio was a little bit more extreme on that. But even in California, that was pretty much the expectation. It was like in year one, we really want to try this thing as written for the purposes then of in subsequent years figuring out what didn't work and,
0: and doing better. And that was very, very similar to what was going on in Texas. But what made Ohio different from Texas is that in year two, they said, okay, now that we know what the landscape is and we we see what the execution is, we're now going to give you the opportunity. We're going to get feedback from you. We're going to make some changes. We're going to let you make changes. Whereas in Texas, it just seemed like we don't want to hear from you. We don't need to hear from you. And responsive teaching is... We say that phrase almost every episode, that we want to make sure that you are are getting feedback from your students, getting feedback from the ecology of your school, and you are responding to your students, you're responding to your school with the appropriate interventions that they need. And the districts that were successful were at the next tier up doing that with their educators and the districts that were not were just not doing that with their educators. And if I were going to boil this down to one thing, I would be a responsive leadership to the needs of the, their their educators.
1: And they did too, because that's the namesake of their paper is the, the good struggle, which I expected to be a classroom thing when I queued up this paper, but it was actually a description of that process of the give and take.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. But the only caveat that I would add was Yes, all of that, but in the context of a district that has provided teachers with materials that they think are good and that they have, that they expect them to use, that provides them with other supports like, you know, reasonably good interim assessments or high quality professional learning with time during the school day. So yes, it is about that responsive leadership that you just said, but in the context of providing those other supports. I I feel like it's a little bit common sense and I feel like if you talk to teachers, you know, if you spend any time in schools at all, you might uh, you might have come up with a similar a similar conclusion. Um but you know, everyone knows that any particular curriculum material isn't perfect, right? That's we all believe that. Um everyone you know, but and, and but I would say that the vast majority of teachers that you talk to Want to have something to organize their instruction around. There are certainly exceptions to that, but high-quality core materials. I think most teachers want that.
0: I I hate to do this because I love your paper. Uh, you keep using this phrase "common sense." Is the approach of the suburban districts common? Well, no, I, I I mean I not. I. Yeah. I don't think you should use that term. I mean, I'm sorry, but I like, and I, I, I I understand it emotionally understand where you're coming from. Like when you, when you see everything, it should be straightforward and it should be laid out. And the, the ifs then all line up like this should be, it feels obvious to maybe you and me, but I don't think it's common sense.
2: Yes. Well, maybe I should say it should be common sense, right? um and yeah, no but i think uh, your point is very well taken um and yeah I, I don't think it's well anyway i've already yeah sorry i, was gonna I say i don't think it's rocket science right but then right. that's also like well but maybe you know maybe it's yeah. more hard than rocket science I right exactly rocket,
0: yeah so, it is a linear so get, flow I, of
2: logic that is my point yeah, i get your point
0: right yeah yeah so i don't know i mean i would be less frustrated if it were that common and we were just got some like rare places where it wasn't working take out the word yes it is sensible
1: well thank you once again this has been a terrific conversation uh if our listeners have enjoyed hearing this conversation and want to read more of your work or uh learn more from the work that you do where can they find your materials
2: uh absolutely it's been a a real pleasure um this is a fun paper to talk about and I, i you know I like the back and forth. I, I love your point about common sense. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. So, I have a book already out there. It's called Beyond Standards, which you can pick up wherever on Amazon or whatever. Um, and I'm working on a second book. And I and I think that this common sense point, I want to I'm going to stick it in my head because my my. My second book is all about bad ideas in education policy. So each chapter is a bad idea that I sort of refute with evidence. One could be on early high school start times, which is uh, absolutely a terrible idea. Um, Except I don't need to write a whole chapter on that because it's so obvious that you could refute it in 500 words. Um, So anyway, but but lots of things that we know are bad are still implemented in schools. And so I think that that's really the point of the second book. And um, and I'm excited to write it. I'm working on it now, and yeah, um, it's been a pleasure.
1: Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read, Where and with whom does a brief social belonging intervention promote progress in college? This was written by Gregory Walton, Mary Murphy, Christine Logel,
0: David Yeager, Jay Parker-Goyer, Shannon Brady, Catherine Emerson, David Pockens- Ponescu, Omid Fatui, Allison Bludorn, Catherine Boucher, Evelyn Carter, Maethrie, Gopalan, Amy Henderson, Catherine Kroper, Lisele L- Murdoch Pereira, Stephanie Reeves, Soto Ablor, Shauna Ansari, Susie Chen, Peter Fisher, Manuel Galvin, Madison Gilbertson, Chris Holliman, Joel LaForestier, Christopher Locke, Katie Mathias, Greg Muragishi, Melanie Netter, Elise Ozier, Eric Smith, Dustin Tommen, Heidi Williams, Matthew Wilmot, Cassie Hartzog, Z Alex Lee, and Natasha Kroll.
1: This was published in Science in 2023.
0: Yeah, well, in a paper about inclusion, you can't leave anybody out.
1: I understand what you are saying. This was a team science paper. And so this is a very short paper. This is a very quantitative focus paper. And so is in great contrast to our previous segment. But it is a paper that culled uh,
0: information from a million students to include 29,000 students. So it is a paper about inclusivity.
1: Yeah, it's really big. And it's, it's looking at the ability of a pretty brief intervention for like, first year college students to help them understand and ultimately to feel a greater sense of belonging during their early collegiate experience. And this is actually building on, it's, I didn't even realize this when I queued this paper, this is building on the same kind of a belonging intervention that I have read both of the previous papers on this intervention that has been shown to be effective in, in relatively focused study settings. And so this very large team then set out to look at, could this intervention where students basically spend 30 minutes in an online module that they can take whenever they have time, That helps them better understand what it feels like to be in early college, how common some of these experiences might be, and thus how to feel a greater sense of belonging in this early stage of their life where they feel perhaps a little bit homesick or they're having trouble identifying with some of their peers so they can have a greater sense of belonging and ultimately persist longer into their college career. And this study said, these early studies say this intervention works. Could it work across all 700 plus institutions of the United States? So they did a big, big study to see if it could work. Yeah. The <clears throat>
0: intervention that they're talking about, uh, approximately 30 minutes long has three parts. It shares survey data from prior students about how they felt about being in school. It uh, shared specific anecdotes, stories about students developing a sense of belonging in the school, and then it asked the actual participant to write a reflection and response uh, regarding belonging. And <clears throat> I, uh, they gave a link in the paper, and I went to the link and I downloaded the material and I created an account and I was gonna like I'm gonna do everything I can to experience this intervention. Except I then had to give them the name of my university that I was implementing this in and I don't have one. So I, I aborted, but, uh, I really tried. I really wanted to experience the intervention because to me, I, I mean, I I'm teaching avid. I have students who are, uh, in families and they are going to be the first people in their, uh, family to go to college. And many of them have uh, demographic, um, um, Identity is different than mine, and I uh, want to have a better understanding of their sense of belonging. I actually had students at at my exit interview at the end of this year, I had students who communicated to me that they don't even belong in my, they feel that they do not belong in my Avid class. And I've had that conversation. I asked that question, and I got that answer from, from one or two students. And so this sense of belonging happens to be fresh because just last week I asked my kids if they felt they belonged in a college preparatory course and two of them told me no. So this this is like I it was so timely and pertinent and relevant. I just I said I got I got to find this. I got to find this intervention and experience it directly so I know what it is because if I, if this is helping kids feel uh and, and they, you know, spoiler alert, yes, it does. If it helps them feel like they belong in the college setting and reduces dropout for first year college students, uh, is there some way that I can use these same ideas in my Avid class to help my students persist in their I am a college Degree earner identity because that's what I'm there to help them develop. I'm there to help them develop their identity as a college degree earner. So um I want I want to experience the intervention and I have not found a way for me to do that. Anyway, I that I just I just went off the cuff and I just I just emotion dumped as soon as this paper started. Like I don't know what I don't know what I don't know, I don't know that I have anything else to say for the rest of this segment yeah. because that is my emotional state and I just could not hold it in.
1: Uh, one nuance that I think is worth drawing out of this fairly brief paper is they found an impact for the belonging intervention caveat. Yeah and it's an important caveat. It's an important caveat for institutions, but also I think for students, for students who are going into college, for them to think about as they choose a collegiate environment, and as facilitators like you, Mr. Woodruff, think about helping them choose a collegiate environment. This intervention that helped them understand that, yes, it's, it's a common feeling to have some homesickness not long after you leave school home like that that happens to lots of people across lots of social identities and it gets better over time and so that's not necessarily an indicator that you don't belong but at some institutions those institutions give many signals that people don't belong and at those institutions the intervention does not help the intervention helping people feel belonging cannot fix places where they don't have opportunities to belong and that was something that showed up in their results And that's something that I think that we have to understand every person who's going to start undertaking work related to belonging, because they even explicitly invoke some growth mindset research in this paper. And I think that there are some parallels there where growth mindset does not cure every ill and a belonging intervention does not cure every ill. We've read uh, growth mindset papers where
0: if you can can reduce dropout rate by 5% by spending two 45-minute lessons that's good. You should do that. And this is a similar thing here. This is a reduction, essentially, of dropout rate by 1% for 30 minutes. 30 minutes reduces dropout rate by 1%. 1% sounds like a small number, but it's a percent. So it's actually a very large number. Yeah.
1: Nationwide, it's over 12,000 students not dropping out. Every year, and these are and and the the thing is, is that the the way the paper was studied and the way
0: the findings were 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 what we found is that the twelve percent, the I'm sorry, the one percent that are dropping out, these are the demographics that that have lower degree completion rates. This is not like one percent across the board. This. Uh, intervention has greater effects for individuals
1: from uh, demographics that are underserved. So the so I think for a should, if we are a show about shoulds, there is certainly the, this kind of intervention is something that I absolutely think is we could be implementing nationwide. And as you pointed out, it's something that I think teachers working with juniors and seniors who intend to go to college should be... Also looking at at applying similar interventions proactively, I think that's a huge opportunity. Absolutely, Uh, but I also think it's something where we need to be looking at institutions to talk more about these affordances for belonging because belonging is a verb. We do belonging. I show up and I I engage in belonging somewhere. And if I don't have opportunities to belong, and I say here, I, me, I am a white man. I have many opportunities to belong in higher education. There are other students who have many fewer opportunities to belong in institutions of higher education. And at those locations, this intervention won't help until we fix the marginalizing forces that are indeed pushing students out. Yeah, I can do values affirmation with my kids,
0: and I can do a lot of things, but I can't make a a Muslim student association at any of their destination colleges.
1: Yeah. And so I think both of those things are—they're are, both important, and that's why I, that's why I feel like I'm pushing so hard on the second piece of it, because it can be tempting to say we did this 30-minute intervention and it solved all of our problems because we got this one percent or two percent in places in institutions where you have these like these substantial opportunities to improve participation and completion rates, and that is a lot, but that it is not all. And so we also have to continue doing work to make opportunities for students to belong. Listen, plan, and play. Uh,
0: so I guess the question then is, how was the beer?
1: Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect with the with the like the tequila flavor, the chocolate flavor, but honestly. Both the tequila and the chocolate experience diminished for me very quickly. I don't have that strong of an experience tasting this. I'm at the last half of my last cup now. It, it, it kind of just tastes like a light stout to me. And I don't actually experience the chocolate or the tequila or the cinnamon. Like I don't. We have a very
0: similar experience. Uh, it's got a uh, the pour is a very small head. It's a standard dark beer. It Doesn't look anything one way or another. It smells slightly sweet. My first impressions were that it was a very weak initial taste. Like it's not that, not that sweet. It it, it, The smell is stronger than the taste. And then it does have, it's sticky on the tongue a little bit, but that it doesn't taste strongly. So it's like, I've got this thing on my mouth, but I'm not really like tasting anything. And then, uh, It's got, I think, a slightly acidic aftertaste, sort of a sour finish, but not actually being a sour, just like this kind of like maybe louder sourness, but it doesn't taste like anything. I don't, I also don't taste chocolate. I don't taste cinnamon. I don't taste tequila.
1: Thanks for tuning in for yet another month. I hope your summer is off to a great start either now or in the near future. Remember, we want to read the things that are valuable to you. We have our last regular episode of the season next month. So please jump on to twopintplc.com and let us know what ideas, what topics, what papers are most valuable to you because we want to know what's important to you and how we can help. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.